They will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And we can say, He saved us from our sins. Isaiah chapter 9. Continuing from Isaiah 7 from last week, Ahaz rejected um, the wonderful opportunity he had to ask the Lord for a miracle, whether from the height or the depth, to indicate his faith in the Lord that he would not allow the Syrian Ephraimite Alliance to succeed in uh, defeating the southern kingdom and putting a vassal king in place, presumably because Syria and Israel wanted Judah together with them to uh, buffer against the, the uh, encroachment of the kingdom of Assyria. But the Lord wanted His people to trust in Him and not in an alliance of nations. And Ahaz had the perfect opportunity. Whatever he could have said, the sky make it purple and the grass make it pink. Uh, anything. Raise somebody from the dead. Um, heal the... The, uh, the old man in town that's been blind since birth. Anything he could have asked and the Lord would have granted it. But in his unbelief and in his trust in Assyria, we understand, he did not uh, believe the Lord and his prophet Isaiah. And he got what he wished for. Uh, the Lord said, therefore, and that therefore is, is a negative. It's, I'm going to give my own sign. And it's going to be for your frustration. I'm sending my king that you're not going to profit by. And you're going to get the king you wanted and he's going to overthrow the land. And uh, it's indeed, even though Assyria did not, bring, did not cause the southern kingdom into captivity, remember it was the northern kingdom that Assyria in 722 caused to uh, be defeated. But Assyrian, the Assyrian army took out its... Took, took a lot of the, the southern kingdom out as far as uh, some land and the, the, kill, the murder of people and the devastation of the land as we read in chapter 8. And um, chapter 9 begins with the fact that just like back then the land was in darkness, so it will be in the days of the child that's born of the virgin. And so, beginning in chapter 9, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So, those were northern tribes. And obviously, most of the damage came from the north, whether it be Babylon or Assyria, Babylon. These, these tribes suffered the brunt of the attacks of the enemies from the north and and uh, obviously they were greatly afflicted in those days and yet they would be obviously in the days when Christ was born because the Roman Empire had subjugated all of, of Judea. And so 
what it's saying here is that this child predicted in chapter 7 would come at a time of great darkness and despair, as it's shown in chapter 9. And remember, Matthew says that this was fulfilled when Jesus went into Galilee preaching. Remember, chapter 4 of Matthew says that that they, those that are in darkness have seen a great light, just quoting Isaiah chapter 9. So it's saying that the people of God would be in great darkness when this child will appear. And even, so, even, even more so afterward, did he more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. So even beyond Zebulun and Naphtali, they were afflicted. Beyond Jordan would be obviously Gilead in Galilee of the nations and by the way of the sea. Um, we know that that uh, some ports were taken by the Syrians that, that really stopped the economic development of the, uh, the kingdom. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, perhaps referring to Egypt. The rod of his oppressors in the day of Midian. You remember Gideon in the book of Judges. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. I think what it's saying there is the confused noise in the, in the Hebrew actually speaks of boots that are heard by thousands of troops that are marching and the garments rolled in blood, obviously, as they do their damage. But what it's saying at the end of verse 5 is that the boots and the military equipment will be actually fuel for the fire. In other words, it's not going to be with, with armies that the Lord causes there to be peace and deliverance. Well, what will cause the peace and the deliverance? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. The word justice is righteousness. From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What a great passage of Scripture. I'd like to, for us to consider the, the thought of God's gift, His miraculous gift today. Well, yesterday, for most Americans and many people around the world, there was an immense flow and exchange of an opening and enjoying of gifts. Gifts for Christmas? What is the significance? Why gifts for Christmas? We understand that there are gifts for birthdays and for weddings and anniversaries and graduations and certain achievements, but why for Christmas is there 
the purchase and the exchange and the opening and enjoying of gifts. What is the point of Christmas? Is it uh, because of good works that we enjoy Christmas? Is it the legend of St. Nicholas, the benefactor of centuries ago? I hope that God's people understand it's in the context of God's generosity and His grace to us in the sending of His Son. The Bible speaks of God's Son as God's gift. Of course, you know John 3.16 and Romans 6, the wages of sin. We deserve, we earn death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember Ephesians 2. We're saved not by works. It's the gift of God, we're told. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But Isaiah foretold God's gift. And I think we would understand and believe that that's why gifts are important in, at the season of Christmas. But we lose that thought, don't we? If the average family was asked, why are gifts exchanged at Christmas? What would they say? We could understand that most would say because Santa Claus came or because it's just a tradition. They have no idea. But the Bible says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So let us consider God's gift of His Son as wrapped in Isaiah 9 and receive Him as Savior, as Lord, and place in the proper context the tradition of Christmas, magnifying, reflecting God's grace and giving us His Son, born to die and born to save. First of all, in this passage, notice the perfect timing of the gift. Great day of darkness would overwhelm the area. As in the days of Ahaz and his failed administration to trust the Lord and, and lean upon the broken staff of Assyria. And so, many were leaning upon anything but the Lord in the days when the Lord Jesus came. It was a bleak time. Jesus came in an extremely low ebb. For centuries, Israel was suppressed, oppressed, in the brunt of war and captivity. We just studied Daniel 11. And Daniel, in the years, uh, 400 years before uh, the events of the, the wars between the Persian generals in the north and the south, and Israel was the brunt, there was the land bridge between the north and the south. You read about this in an extraordinary prophecy in the, the, uh, the, the specific fulfillment of the, uh, the Syrian-Egyptian wars. And Israel was in the, the brunt of their, their uh, wars. And, and uh, obviously they were decimated over those years before Christ came. And when Christ came, Rome had spread its wings over the, the nation and over the world. And they were greatly oppressed. They were driven to darkness by their uh, objects of devotion, we're told in chapter 8 of Isaiah, verse 22. But even beyond the, the, the nations that ruled at that time or those days, 
It had been 4,000 years since the creation of man when Christ came. So in other words, there was plenty of time for man to groom a Savior, to deliver him from his guilt, to deliver him from his darkness, to deliver him from the lack of any hope of life beyond the grave. So man had plenty of time. Was it David? Was it Solomon? Were other nations able to secure a Savior for mankind? No. But Galatians tells us in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. At the perfect time. We wonder, why didn't Jesus come earlier or later? He came at the perfect time when man was in great darkness. And even since then, it's been 2,000 plus years, hasn't it? And man has tried still to find peace. Remember the war that was to end all wars, World War I. And where are we today? In the midst of wars. And even in our country, there's a civil war, as it were, among people. A political war. A, a uh, spiritual war. Man is still in the darkness of sin and doubt and fear. It is a perfect time to, say, to seek the Lord. We're not waiting for Him to come. He already has come. Jesus is available. He is the common Savior, as we're told, a common salvation. He's available to all who trust in Him. And it's time to seek the Lord. And that's an application here. Man is in deep darkness. He has no hope. What, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your sin? What do you do with preparation for death? Is there any hope beyond the grave? But in Jesus, He takes away the guilt. He forgives the sins because He paid for it. And He gives eternal life to all who believe in Him. It's time to seek the Lord. Perfect timing for the gift of Christ today. Secondly, verses 3-4, to the primary reason for the gift. The Bible tells us that the primary reason is the fact that God brought joy to the nation by this child. Verse, verses 3 and 4. And He breaks the yoke of their burden, the burden of sin, the staff of their shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. In other words, He specifically focuses on joy and deliverance in these verses. Salvation, in other words. Now, granted, it, it, there was certainly relief um, socially when Christ came, but it was all undergirded by the fact that He brought salvation, which obviously will bring relief socially and perhaps even economically as the people were serving Him. But the focus is on the fact that they were full of sorrow and they were depressed and oppressed and the Lord would increase the joy and it says it's not just the joy of, 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 a, of a Messiah that isn't a Savior. Because it says they joy before thee. Notice it's a godly joy. It's not the joy of a, of a nation that has finally an administration that is decent. Or a nation that is, 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 uh, is delivered from economic oppression. But it's talking about salvation, the joy of the Lord. Not the joy that the world brings. And we sing, do we not? Joy to the world. Why? The Lord has come. That's the joy that it's talking about. 
in verse three. In the in verse four, he he green he wants us to think about, for instance, Egypt when God broke their yoke and the staff of their oppression, when the Lord brought Egypt or Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. And salvation is an exodus for us. We're delivered. We're, we're brought out of the slavery of sin into the uh, the freedom of righteousness. And he wants us to think about the judges. Remember how the Lord used Gideon to defeat the Midianites, and they were under oppression for what seven years or more. And the Lord also wants us to see here when we think about Gideon, that he had thousands at first, remember? But the Lord said, too many. Too many. Man will get the glory. Too many. And what, was, what were left? 300 men. That's it. 300. The Lord was saying, I'm going to deliver you, not by might, nor by power, but by My Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It's, it's God's Son and isn't it interesting how the Lord says here uh, that light comes when I break the yoke of your burden and when I burn all the military equipment, verse 5. In other words, He's saying that the breaking of the burden of sin and the, and the deliverance and the bringing of joy into the heart of men is not caused by a war among my people. And it's not going... And, and, the, and the military equipment of the enemy is not going to succeed. It's going to be fuel for the burning. What is the solution? A child of all things. But the primary reason for this gift of the child is the fact that the Lord would save us and give us the joy of the Lord and deliverance from our sins. It isn't that true of every believer. The Lord forgives our sins and removes our guilt and gives us joy, real joy for the first time in our lives. What is joy? But, but it is a sense of, of exuberance over the fact that we're no longer at enmity with God and hopelessly lost and unsure of our eternity. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The Lord delivers us from our enemies, all of our enemies, from ourselves. We're our worst enemies. The flesh, the devil, and the world. Sin is a cruel taskmaster. Satan is a deceitful murderer. The flesh is a vile bloodsucker. And the Lord saves us from our enemies. Yes, Jesus saves. That's the primary reason for the gift. They will call His name Jesus. For He, not just as a name that reflects that God saves, He Himself will save His people from their sins. Do you know the forgiveness of sins? Do you know the removal of guilt? Do you know that you have peace with God through Christ? Do you know for sure that your sins are forgiven? you have the Spirit of God bearing witness with your spirit? That you're a child of God. That's what God's gift is for. Salvation. We're a lost race. And we need to be saved. Verse 5. Notice the personal involvement of the guilt. It's all in the gift. It's all in the giver. 
It's the sovereignty of God. Thou hast done it. Notice verse 3. Thou hast multiplied the nation. And verse 4. Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden. And notice it's before thee that they rejoice. Verse 3. In other words, it's God that does the work. It's God that is the, that, that's the one that saves us. He personally is involved. It's not God helps those who help themselves. It's God helps those who have no help in themselves. Utterly helpless. We are utterly unable to take a step towards salvation. We trust in the Lord to save our souls. For God so loved the world that He gave. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Not of works. It's all of God's grace. And the Lord is saying, it's not by carnal warfare that you will accomplish salvation and neither shall the carnal warfare of the devil and, and, and of man succeed in keeping you from Christ. So whether it be boots, as is the, 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 the noise that's spoken of here, of, of boots that are marching, or of weapons, helmets, all military paraphernalia will be just fuel for the fire because it's a spiritual warfare and God accomplishes our salvation with a spiritual work that is from within where the Lord will atone for our sins and the Lord will appease the wrath of God. What a Savior. Personally involved, not only is the Lord our Father, but the fact that His Son was personally involved Fourthly, verse 6a. Notice the precise description of the gift. The precise description of the gift. You know, have you ever received a gift and you're not sure what, it's, what, it, what it is and what it's used for? Thank you, but what is it? And how do I use it? And what's it, what's it good for? But notice the precise description of the gift. There's not an unknown nature of it. The directions are included. Notice how specific it is. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Do you see the distinctions of those statements? Those statements indicate that this child will have two natures. He will be a human because he's a born child, but he'll be, a, he'll be divine and he's a, a son that's given. In other words, I understand that the first thing is that he's the Son of God, he's divine. But in the sense that it's a prophecy of who the Messiah is, the humanity is spoken of first. But the point is, it's precise. It's absolutely precise that this child will not be merely a human being. Just like Jesus said, I have come down from heaven. And they were perplexed. How could you come down from heaven? Now, some people will say, well, our child was a gift from heaven, but we don't mean that our child had a pre-existence. This is saying that, that Christ has a pre-existence. He's not merely a human being. His humanity began when He was born in Bethlehem. But He is from of old, from everlasting, as the Son given. As the Bible says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father. Remember we sang, Hark the herald angels sing. What great expressions. Hail the incarnate Son. Right? Hail the incarnate Deity. And what's the other expression in that hymn? Jesus, our Emmanuel. Those are statements that Charles Wesley indicates that show us the precise description of the Messiah. He is two natures, but one person. We sing, He came down from heaven. Right? He came down from heaven. He is the God-man. Theanthropos. He appeases God's wrath. He had to be divine. He could not merely be human. First of all, He had to be divine to be able to appease the wrath of God. But He had to be human to to have the the capability of, of atoning for our sins and paying for our sins. What a Savior. A miraculous Savior. Chapter six or chapter nine again, verse six. Notice the surprising nature of the gift, as I mentioned it before. A baby. Who would ever expect a baby to save sinners? A baby to make a difference in all the world. That's what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah, what makes the difference? What brings light to the darkness? What relieves us of the burden of sin? What delivers us from all the military powers of the world and the flesh and the devil, as it were? What is it that brings joy in the midst of sorrow? And what does he say? A baby makes all the difference in the world. The last place that you would look would be for a baby, a birth that makes all the difference in the world. Willie Mays used to be a an outfielder for the San Francisco Giants. and He was a humble man. But his father, he was perplexed that just continued to be a, 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 a country man. And he was kind of perplexed with his ways. And one day, he realized that his father was keeping his, his, uh, his cash in a drawer in the freezer. And he said, why do you keep your cash in the drawer of a freezer because he said nobody will ever think to look there. And you know, isn't Isaiah saying that? No one's going to ever think that God is going to bring salvation and deliverance from a baby. You know, isn't it amazing that he's the second Adam from above, he's the, he's the man from heaven, and yet he wasn't like Adam created as a, an adult. The Lord created man Christ came as, as a seed of the woman. He had to go through the nine months. He had to be born. He had to be a, an infant and a toddler and a young person. So vulnerable. And the Lord used means. He could have just smitten hair at hip and thigh. Or He could have just made sure the star went around Jerusalem so they wouldn't even have to deal with Herod. But He says, I'm going to deal with the the normal ways of life. I'm going to have him go right in the midst of Jerusalem. And I'm going to have him threatened by Herod. And the Lord sent His Son to fulfill Scripture to Egypt. But a place you'd never expect to find deliverance. Faith in a baby. And that just isn't it amazing that these dignitaries, I don't know if they were kings 
or if they were just just uh, uh, wise men. It says they were magi, but they came and and where is he that is born king of the Jews? And you would think that as they were led into the house and they saw a little child, that it was said, a king that's a little child? But yet they understood that he was born recently. And here they were in that house and they didn't say, and they didn't say, it doesn't say they bowed to Mary or they bowed to Joseph. It said they bowed and worshipped him. They worshipped the baby. Faith in a baby. Can you imagine? If that baby is Christ, if He's God and man, then He's to be worshipped as a baby. He's to be worshipped as a toddler. He's to be worshipped as a young person. He's to be worshipped as a man. He's to be worshipped as the ascended Son of God in heaven. The Lord deserves our worship. God's Son is the genius to the powerful salvation of sinners. And it says the government will be upon the baby's shoulder. It's upon His shoulder. He rules wherever He is. Think about it. These men bowed to the baby. That was a result of His government. He powerfully subdued these dignitaries where they worshipped the baby. The government was indeed upon His shoulder. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He couldn't have perhaps said that in His, in his little infancy, but it, it shows it. The Magi said, He's the way, the truth, and the life. Do you worship the Lord Jesus Christ? We have the benefit of seeing Him post-birth, post-life, post-resurrection. He is seated at the right hand of God. What power, what majesty He possesses. Millions of believers in heaven and millions perhaps of angels worshiping Him. What a privilege we have where we are to worship the Lord. We are at His footstool. He is our King. He's our Governor. You know, we we can't trust in our governess. We can trust in our Governor, the Lord Jesus. Notice the practical benefit of the gift. You know, gifts have their benefit. We're grateful for them. But there are gifts that cannot achieve the full orb of what we need. His name shall be called. And it doesn't say Jesus here. It gives us names that focus on His character, His work. But the name of Jesus is precious, isn't it? And His name shall be called Emmanuel. Yes, God with us. But His name is Jesus. And when you see His name in Scripture, when you read His name upon God's Word, does it touch your heart still? Does it not thrill you? Mrs. Martin Lloyd-Jones, remember the, the preacher from Wales and from England, his wife was teaching an old man named Mr. Matthews to read. And she was using the Scriptures. And he was moving along very very well and very quickly and he was using his finger to read the Scriptures. And he was reading in Matthew. And he had never come across the name of Jesus before where he could understand it. And she tells the story that he was coming along and they will call his name and he stopped. 
and he wept. The first time he was able to read and understand the name of Jesus. And he melted at that point. For the first time in his life, he was able to read and understand the name of Jesus. What are you, what are, what's our reaction to the name of Jesus today? His name speaks of his reputation, his resume, his fame, his skills. And I don't know if there are five titles here or four. It was, does it really matter? But it tells us so much about Jesus. That this child would have deity shining through his mind and his heart. His touch. He's called the, the Wonderful Counselor. And if we take wonderful as one title, it, it's, it's the same word of, that was given to Manoah and his wife. When they asked the name of this personage, why do you seek, why do you seek my name for it is wonderful? It speaks of his deity, that this child's reputation would be that he is God. And how many people when he was ministering said, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? How could he have known that I was under that tree except he be indeed the Son of God? I tell you about someone that knew all about me, said the woman of Samaria. He is wonderful. He's a wonderful counselor. We need knowledge, don't we? We need the truth. And he's the prophet that brings us the truth about ourselves, about the world, about God, about salvation, about eternity. He's called Mighty God. And you know, we know God is mighty. So what is a particular word mighty here is the word warrior. He's the warrior God. He's the, the God who is, who is able to defeat all of our enemies. You know, when He brings peace, it's, I think it's true that when it talks about Him being Prince of Peace and peace I leave unto you, you don't, you don't achieve peace until you make war with the enemies. And the Lord coming to be our peacemaker has to defeat all our foes. And that's the context of Isaiah 9. He destroys the oppressor. He destroys the Egyptian. He destroys the Midianites. He destroys all of our enemies. Because He's the mighty warrior. He's God the warrior. He's called Everlasting Father. Don't, don't, don't think that this blurs the distinction between the Father and the Son. The Father is used as, a, as an illustration. Someone translated this, always a Father. In other words, remember the song we sing, Father-like, what is it, number 103 in our, in our hymnals? Think, Father-like, He tends in... 53, let me... I think it's worth looking up. Father-like, He tends and spares us. Is that 53? Or is that number, number, number 2? Praise my soul, the King of Heaven. Verse 3, Father-like, He tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame He knows. In His hands He gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. This is a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that hymn writer understood that Everlasting Father was referring to Christ as the One who's the source of our salvation, the source of our comfort, 
the one who adopts us into his family. And so it's not a, a blurring of the distinction between the father and the son, but that he is always a father, always tenderly caring for us. And indeed, the Prince of Peace. We have to be, first of all, delivered of, from God who is our enemy. That's, he's our chief enemy. And the Lord Jesus, by His life and death, removed the hostility that God had toward us. Who can stand if God is your enemy? If God be for us, who can be against us? But if God be against us, who can be for us? But Christ stood in the gap and took the brunt of God's wrath that we deserved. He not only caused the hostility to cease, but He caused the tranquility and the fellowship to begin. And now we are thriving under the smile of God's grace. So God, who was our judge, not only says, I justify you by the work of My Son, I adopt you, I bring you into My family. It's like the judge justifying the criminal and then saying, come home for dinner. Come home and be in My family. Be My son. Be My daughter. And the Lord Jesus brings such peace to you and me. And notice finally, in verse 7, the perpetual need of the gift. It's forever. I ask you and me, where are the gifts of yesteryear? Where are gifts ten years ago, five years ago? They were, they were great gifts, kind gifts. Was it a car? Where does the car end up? On a heap of metal. Our gifts were spent or broken or irrelevant now or burned in fires, discarded, just memories for many of us. But the Bible says of this child and his work, of the increase of his government in peace or prevailing peace, there shall be no term limit, no end to order and to establish it. The Lord's administration is forever. Not only in judgment by sin being removed, but in righteousness and holiness replacing it. Now and forever is our Savior's governor, as governor of our souls. He preserves us and prevents us from ever falling again into sin. Isn't it a wonderful thought there will never be a second fall? Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1945, as as Germany and as Japan were about to collapse, absolutely. You know what he said? The great fact to remember is that the trend of civilization is forever upward. Oh, how wrong he was. Our civilization is going down to the depths, down to hell. It's the church of Jesus Christ. That's the great fact to know that the trend of the church is forever upward because Jesus Christ is the governor that has no term limit that will never be dethroned. Jesus came at the perfect time And notice, we can't miss that last statement. 
How is it, God, that you're going to accomplish peace in the midst of hostility? How are you going to bring joy when there is great grief? How are you going to bring light in darkness? How are you going to deliver us from all of our enemies? How are you going to do it through a baby? Well, God says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. His jealousy for His glory and His jealousy for our salvation. Do you understand that He predicted this 735 years before Christ came? You know, the Springville Journal has a a page every week that says 50 years ago, a son or a daughter was born to so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. I have never read that in 2757, a son will be born to so-and-so. I have never read that in, in 2071, that a child is born to so-and-so. Even 50 years. I won't read that in 2023, that a child will be born to so-and-so. But we read that in, seven, in 735 years before Christ, that he would be born. And as if God was saying to Satan, to Syria, to us Syria, to Babylon, Persia, to Greece, to Rome, to the Antichrist, try to stop me. Try to stop me. And they threw everything at the providence of God. Where is Herod? Where is Pilate? Where is Caiaphas today? We fear where they are. But where is Christ? Seated on the right hand of God. So at Christmas, after Christmas, today, let us remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And it stands true that the wages of sin is death. If you, if you want to try to earn your salvation, you will earn eternal death. But if you trust in God's Son, the gift of God is eternal life through And in Jesus Christ our Lord. Trust in God's gift. Receive His gift. It will never get old. It will never become irrelevant. It will be always eternally useful and practical. Amen.